Welcome to the Commons Cast. We're glad to have you here. We hope you find something meaningful in our teaching this week. Head to commons.church for more information. Welcome to Commons today. Uh, My name is Jeremy. I'm part of the team here at Commons, but uh, I spend a lot of my time over in Kensington. And so if we haven't met yet in real life, hi, welcome, come say hi after. Uh, thanks for inviting me over to this side today, Scott. I really appreciate the chance to get over here as well. Plus my son gets to see some old friends, which uh, we miss from Kensington. So it's always great to be here on the east side. Now, I know that Bobby was here last week and she introduced some of the new members of our board team you last week. But I also wanted to add my thanks as well, particularly to Janice, who has joined the board uh, from the parish here in Inglewood, but also to Stuart and Regina, who are always part of this community and also serve on the board. It's a really great thing for us to have such a strong representation of this Inglewood parish on our board at Commons. And I work really closely with this team all year. These are amazing people, and we really appreciate them. You can always head to commons.church and if you click on the team page you can read bios of all of our board members, see who they are and how they serve if you're interested in that. So check it out. Now that said, we are in the season of Lent today as we have already prayed and that is why I'm wearing this purple stole this week. This is part of how we remind ourselves of the season and how we mark the sacredness of time together as we move through it. And during the season, we are focused on the parables of grace. So far, we have talked about lost sheep, this bizarrely good shepherd who would leave 99 behind in the open field to go off chasing after one. And then we talked about an unmerciful servant This invitation to leave behind a world of relational accounting and instead embrace a narrative of grace that would reshape everything about how we see the world. Today, we have the story of a good Samaritan. And I know that one of the challenges to a story like this is that most of us know this story too well. And so allowing ourselves to hear a story like this as if it was the first time is a really difficult ask, but it's one that becomes more necessary the more familiar these stories get. And so today, let's pray, and we'll invite some second naivete as we begin to read. God, we come today in search of your grace and peace. We want to become fully immersed in your imagination of welcome extended to us. Also that we might then carry it with us into our schools, our workplaces, our homes, our relationships. We want to represent something of the mystery you invite us into, an absurd grace that draws those around us toward your heart. At the same time, Some of us perhaps feel a little battered and bruised today, as if left on the side of the road, perhaps as if grace has not yet come to find us. And so we pray that as we speak and we hear your stories, that those of us who would need to would sense your love in the midst of our lostness. Might we truly believe today that being lost is the only prerequisite for being found. 
And then for those of us who are being found, help us not to become weary of caring for each other, but help us to remember that as we look after each other, as we invest in each other, we are investing ourselves in the only thing that will last, your love. So help us, guide us, heal us, speak to us this morning. In the strong name of the risen Christ we pray, amen. So, Good Samaritan. Uh, Today we have lawyers being lawyers, stories becoming parables, possible readings, and finding ourselves in the other. But why don't we start by reading the story today because it's a really good one. In Luke 10, starting in verse 25, we read that on one occasion, an expert of the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, NIV here on the screen here translates this expert in the law. Literally, though, in Greek, the word is just lawyer. So it doesn't necessarily mean an expert in religious law. Here, the text just calls him a nomakos, or a lawyer, and he asks his question, and Jesus responds. What is written? How do you read it? And I love this opening line here because sometimes... I think we get it in our heads that the Bible is always clear and there's only one way to read it. And Jesus seems to here, at least, assume the opposite. I mean, Jesus almost takes for granted that different people are going to read things differently. And even though Jesus has his interpretation that ultimately he wants to invite us into, I love that he invites this guy not just to quote some scripture, but to give his interpretation of it. What does it mean for you? Know this, everything you read all the time, you are interpreting. Whether it is Harry Potter or ancient history or the parables of Jesus, you are creating meaning in your mind with everything you read. And that's okay. That's what you're supposed to do. Jesus asks you, how do you read it? What does it mean for you? But if you don't know that, or you somehow fall into the trap of thinking that you alone can read without your bias or experience or place in the world filtering those words and turning them into ideas, well, that does become a problem. And look, if Jesus isn't scared to invite your interpretation then perhaps you shouldn't be afraid to name it as such either. And here, Jesus says, how do you read it? What does it mean for you? And the man, perhaps having heard Jesus speak before, gives this fantastic answer. He quotes Jesus to Jesus. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, This is a combination here of Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19, but this is also precisely the answer that Jesus gives in Matthew 22 and in Mark 12, and there's a paraphrased version in John 13. And so Jesus, probably a little impressed with this man's response, says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. And if that was the end of our story today, it would still be a good one with a lot to unpack here. I mean, this is a summary of the law in two short sentences. But, of course, that is not the end of our story because we all know we need a parable today. And so the lawyer pushes a little bit farther. 
wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And this is the part of the story that I just love. All because it seems so very lawyerly. Now, I know nothing about being a lawyer. Uh, I did watch the show The Grinder, a show that no one else watched. It got canceled far too soon. You should look it up and watch it. Fred Savage plays a small town lawyer. Rob Lowe plays his brother, who is an actor who plays a lawyer on TV. Very meta, right? I know. But the premise of the show is that Rob Lowe's character moves home and wants to become a real lawyer like his brother. And so basically the show is about him showing up in court and just yelling objection and harassing witnesses and acting as if lawyering in real life is the same as it is on TV. It's all very amusing. But without dragging any lawyers here in the room, this is what lawyers do. They want some details and definitions and limitations and liabilities. Basically, this is a really good lawyer question. And so in response, Jesus tells a really great story. He says this. He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road when he saw the man and he passed by on the other side of the road. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw the man, passed by on the other side. But then a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey. He brought him to an inn and he took care of him. The next day, he took two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have had. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? There's a couple things here to mention off the top. First of all, again, this is a very familiar story. Uh, whether you have been a Christian all your life, eating juice and cookies in the chairs, or whether you just literally walked in here off the street into church for the first time in your life, you are probably somewhat familiar with this tale. Uh, Good Samaritan is an idiomatic phrase in the English language. At this point, it almost has nothing to do with the biblical story. It just simply means someone who's willing to help without an ulterior motive. Uh, Speaking of lawyers, I don't know if you know this, but we actually have a Good Samaritan law in Canada. I'll read it to you. It says, despite the rules of the common law, a person described in subsection 2 who voluntarily and without reasonable expectation of compensation or reward provides the services described in that subsection, this person shall not be liable for the damages that result from the person's negligence in acting or failing to act while providing such services unless it can be established that the damages were caused by the gross negligence of said person. The grinder aside, I do prefer Jesus' version of the story, but you get the idea here. The story is one that we know. It's in our bones. It's enshrined in the legalese of our nation. And that makes it very hard for us to engage with on a personal level. We just know it too well. And this is something that happens 
to all of us the longer we are immersed in the words of Jesus. They become normalized. And that's really unfortunate because a lot of what Jesus says is intentionally scandalous. It's predicated on the shock. That's the point. And that means that whenever a story begins to feel familiar or innocuous or safe or comfortable, that we have some work to do. So let's go back to the start and let's pay attention to some of the clues that give us more context here. First, a lawyer comes to Jesus and asks a question. And things seem pretty normal off the bat. People asking questions of Jesus happens all the time in the Gospels. In fact, that is very much part of the rabbinic tradition when it comes to teaching. Conversation is always better than a monologue, he said from the stage. But already, in this opening, Luke is giving us some clues as to what the story is about. Uh, the word that's used for the lawyer's question here is the word parazo, or a form of it. And that means to test something in order to understand. But Luke actually adds the intensifying prefix here to make it ekparazo. And generally in Greek, ekparazo means something more like to entice or to trap. So this is a question, it's a test, but at least as Luke sees it, this is not a fair test. This encounter isn't really about learning or discovering. This is designed here to trap Jesus. It's meant for him to fail. And I wonder if Jesus sees that coming. The man asks a question. Jesus responds with a question of his own. How do I inherit eternal life? Well, how do you think you inherit eternal life? And look, I hated this kind of thing when I was a kid, but now as a parent, I find myself doing it all the time. Eaton, you need a timeout. Why do I need a timeout? Why do you think you need a timeout? That happens regularly in our house. And immediately here, there's sort of this underlying tension to the story, right? Everybody's being very polite, very respectful. Now, the lawyer even refers to Jesus using the honorific title teacher. But you get the sense that everyone here knows what's really going on. This is a battle of wits. And so the lawyer asks his question, and Jesus responds with his, and the lawyer says, okay, if you want to play games, we can do that. And he quotes Jesus to Jesus. And I imagine Jesus sort of smile and nod and acknowledge the man. And yet, instead of taking the bait and trying to argue with this lawyer, he simply says, well answered. And he tries to move on, but the lawyer interrupts. Just one more question, sir. I've heard you say this many times before. It's beautiful, a great sound bite. We all love it. But who exactly is my neighbor? And I think for me, uh, part of the reason that I'm drawn to this encounter so much is that this all feels very familiar. That Jesus says, love your neighbors. And the people say, yeah, sure, but not like actual enemies, right? Jesus says, forgive 
always. And the people say, yeah, sure, but not like all the time, right? Jesus says, you belong to me if you love people. And we say, yeah, sure, but people is so hard to define. I mean, who is people, am I right? And it seems to me that Jesus is constantly trying to expand our imagination of grace And sometimes on the other side, we are working very hard to close it all back down. In in a different circumstance, you could imagine this question being asked in a very different way. Jesus says, I love your neighbor. And somebody says back to him, Jesus, I love what you're saying, but really, who is my neighbor? I mean, who should I go out and find? And who should I go out and love? Who should I pour my resources into and share my life with and love well? But that's not really the question here, is it? Because the question is formed, who is my neighbor? But the question that's really being asked here is who is not? And sometimes, I think that we need to be more brutally honest with ourselves that often we have very well-formed theologies that are designed to sound nice while at the same time indemnify us from the most scandalous implications of God's grace. And so, instead of argue, Jesus tells a story. And there's a couple things in this story that are really intriguing to me. First of all, Jesus doesn't actually introduce this as a parable. Uh, Normally, he will say something like, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep. Or maybe the kingdom of God is like, but here he just says, a man was going down to Jericho. And if we're getting technical here, what he actually says in the Greek is, a certain man was going down to Jericho. And because of this, Uh, People have wondered for centuries now about whether this is actually a parable at all. Uh, Is this a story? Or did this happen to someone? Did Jesus hear about this? Did Jesus see this? Did this happen to Jesus? And that probably we will never know, at least not this side of eternity, but it is important to notice how personally Jesus seems to tell this story. In the first week of the series, we talked about the lost sheep. And when I taught about that story, I talked about it as not just a parable, but a fairy tale in the best possible sense. The story of the lost sheep is designed to help us imagine a world we wish existed. A world where any one of us would be as absurdly gracious as God where any one of us would leave the 99 behind to go and find one, but this is a very different kind of story. Because this is not a fairy tale. This is a story that's very firmly rooted in a world where people get mugged, where people hurt each other, and people ignore each other, where people shoot each other while people pray. This is a story that's very firmly rooted in the real world and that's actually incredibly important as well. Because if grace is going to be aspirational, 
something that we aspire to as it was in the lost sheep, then grace also has to be plausible in the real world as well. And sometimes before you and I can dream about a world where any one of us would be as good as the shepherd, first we need to believe in a world where one of us might at least try. Never discount those small moments of unnoted grace that you extend to someone near to you. Because they may not be as profound as the Good Samaritan and it might be that no one will ever write it down but someone is watching and someone needs to see that before someone can dream about a universe of God's love that surrounds them always. Sometimes we need to see it in action in small ways before we can believe it in the big ways. And here, there are a couple details that shape my reading of this story. And they actually take it in a couple different directions for me, but I think both of them are potentially important. First, Jesus says the man was going down to Jericho from Jerusalem. Now, that is about a 30-kilometer walk uh, with a drop in elevation of about 3,000 feet, depending on where you end up in Jericho. So it's a long trip, but it's a very doable trip and likely was a fairly common trip in the ancient world. The difficulty with this trip is that it would take you a long distance from either city, sort of when you're in the middle. And away from the city, out in the country, that was a very vulnerable space in the ancient world. Out there, this man gets mugged. Now he's traveling alone, he's beaten, his clothes are stolen, he's left for dead, but in a brilliant stroke of luck, a priest and a Levite happen to walk by. Unfortunately for him, both of them cross to the other side and they walk past without helping. So, a priest and a Levite walk into a bar and everyone said, what's the difference? Well, Levites were the tribe that the priests came from, but the priests were the direct descendants of Aaron. So, all priests are Levites, but not all Levites are priests, okay? However, both priests and Levites would have been highly esteemed and well-regarded from their birth, based on their family. And yet neither of them step in to help here. And there may be some reasons for that. Uh, in this story, we are told that the first man is traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, but we're not explicitly told which way any of the passerbys are heading. And that complicates things at least a little bit. Because in the case of the priest, and possibly in the case of the Levite, if they were heading from Jericho up the other way to Jerusalem, this would have presented a conundrum. Uh, see, Jesus says that the victim has been left for dead. But if the priest was heading to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people, then touching a dead body would make him ritually unclean and therefore unable to enter the holy place. I mean, hey, if the guy is dead, he's dead, right? I mean, there's nothing you can do about that. Maybe he's just playing it safe here. And I know that still sounds bad, and it is, but I think it does add a wrinkle. Because all of a sudden, these aren't villains. They're not heartless, they're just being pragmatic. 
I mean, if you're a priest and your job is to offer sacrifices on behalf of the nation and the people, then that's important, isn't it? And if you can't do your job and sins don't get forgiven, that's going to be a problem. And so maybe in his mind, he's putting his duty to the community above his duty to the individual. And who knows if he can even help this guy anyway. Better to focus on what he knows he can do. And if that's the case, well, then maybe Jesus' question here is about do I do the right thing or do I do the more right thing? That's a lot more realistic, isn't it? I don't know about you, but rarely do I struggle with love and hate. It's more like shades of gray. Hulk smash isn't really my problem. It's more like Hulk sulk angrily in the corner, right? Because the truth is, rarely do we face a choice between good and evil. It's usually more like good and less good, or evil and more evil. And so maybe Jesus' point here is that loving your neighbor is about constantly evaluating how best to be present to those immediately in front of you right now. That loving your neighbor is about ensuring that rules never override people. And if that's all that we get from this story, I think that's a win. But there is a complication here. Because we're not told which direction the passerbys are heading, but we are told that they are going down the same road. And we might use that phrase pretty loosely in English, but in Greek, there are the terms katabino to go down and anabino to go up. And in fact, in Hebrew language, you always anabino, you always go up to Jerusalem. And the fact here that everyone is katabinoing suggests that they are probably likely, almost probably, all heading in the same direction down to Jericho. And if that's the case, well, then ritual purity isn't the problem, so what is? And the answer here is, of course, wrapped up in the identity of this final character, a Samaritan. Now, if you're not familiar with Samaritans, these were a people group that were essentially half Jewish. They were Israelites that survived the conquest of the northern kingdom by Assyria. And they intermarried with the Assyrians and they developed a syncretized form of Judaism. There's this beautiful story where Jesus interacts with a Samaritan woman in the Gospel of John. And immediately she points to some of the differences in their respective religions and Jesus says to her, listen, none of that matters. God is spirit. And a time will come when ritual will give way to heart. But it's important here to understand that for hundreds of years at this point, Jews and Samaritans have not gotten along. In fact, Samaria was in the middle of Judea and Jews at the time would often walk around an entire country just to avoid setting foot on Samaritan soil. So the idea of contrasting a Samaritan, not just with a Jew, but with a Levite and a priest, this is incredibly loaded language. And everyone listening to Jesus now is super uncomfortable. Because it was tense before, 
But everyone was still being polite. And now it's like Jesus has just pulled the lid off of any polite conversation. He tells about how this Samaritan helps the man and then takes him to an inn. He pays for his lodging. He compensates the owner for any costs and he promises to return and settle up if things go over. I mean, this is over-the-top, overboard generosity. This story is hyperbolic to the point that Jesus knows that when he gets to his climax and he asks the question, who is the neighbor, there's going to be no doubt left in anyone's mind. But what exactly is his point here? Is it that Samaritans are nice and Jews are mean? Well, no, that doesn't really make any sense. Jesus is Jewish himself. Most of his audience is as well. So ethnicity is the hook in the story. It's not the point. In fact, his whole point seems to be that things like ethnicity, proximity, respectability, familiarity, all of these neighborly markers that we hold on to are entirely overrated when it comes to real neighborliness. Perhaps one might say a neighbor is as a neighbor does. And I really like the way that Joel Green capturizes this in his commentary on Luke. He says that the importance of the priest and the Levite is not about ethnicity, but instead raises much larger issues of a socio-cultural variety. Priests and Levites shared high status in the community, not because they were trained or chosen, but simply because they were born into the right families. They participated in and were legitimated by a world with circumspect boundaries between people. They epitomized a worldview of tribal consciousness concerned with relative status and us-them cataloging. They were accustomed to being elevated on the basis of their ancestry, not their choices. In other words, everything about their world told them that they weren't like others. And eventually, they started to believe it. It's as simple as this. They didn't act like a neighbor because they didn't think they were a neighbor, and therefore, they weren't a neighbor. And if we're being honest here, there are all kinds of ways that we are told who our neighbors are and who our neighbors are not. Have I been told that being born in Canada makes my voice more valid than others? Have I been told that owning my house means I hold more stake in the neighborhood I live in? Have I been told that my degrees give me more right to speak on behalf of God? Have I been told that being white, being a man, being straight means I'm the default in every conversation? And the answer is yes. For all of my life, all of these messages have told me who I am and who my neighbor is and they're wrong. And so Jesus takes a Samaritan a religious and social nobody that practices a deviant form of religion, a loser who just happens to be on the same road one day, and he says, can you see yourself in this person? Because if not, then you'll never see yourself in the ditch, and until that happens, you'll never really understand what it actually means to be a neighbor. You see, 
This is the real question of the story here. It's who do we see ourselves in? And the first step is to see ourselves in the hero, the person who does what we want to do. The next step is to see ourselves in the villain, the characters who do the things we often do. But the ultimate goal is that we actually come to see ourselves in the ditch. And that slowly Jesus is able to expand our humanity, to extend past the social silos that feed our religiously approved apathy. One day, they might give way to genuinely heretical love. You see, this is a parable of grace, not just for the grace that's extended to the man in the ditch. That's the easy part of the story. The parable of grace is about the grace that invites each of us to transcend all of our categories we live within. Also that we can recognize what we share with every human being who crosses our path. Grace is not a helping hand in a hotel stay. Grace is the shared experience of life without an us and a them. And if grace is the world that we dream about when we're told of shepherds who leave 99 to go and find one, And grace is the world that begins when you and I learn to see ourselves in the person that's across from us in the room right now. A neighbor is as a neighbor does. So may you learn to neighbor well this week. Let's pray. God, for all the ways that we have allowed different narratives to shape our imagination of who we are and who our neighbors are. We repent. Would you instead fill our minds with new stories? Stories that begin to cross social boundaries and economic lines and all the different walls that we create between us and them? Would we begin to see ourselves in the hero of this story and imagine that we could act the way that he does? Would that cause us to reflect and see ourselves in the antagonists of the story? The ways that we often create lines as well and exclude those who need our help. But ultimately, God, might you help us to see ourselves in the ditch? Might we come to realize that we are all deeply in need, that we need the people around us, that community is what builds us and holds us together. It's what sustains us in the world, that none of us are independent on our own. That when we give ourselves to that need, and we offer ourselves to community without reservation, that we begin to embody the story of grace you have entered into the world to show us. Let your grace and peace become the narrative through which we live out in our, narrative, in our relationships, in our friendships, in our transactions, in our workplaces. Might we love and neighbor as you love and neighbor as well. And may that begin to change the world in some small way. In the strong name of the risen Christ we pray. Amen.